The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab for Monday, June 29th, 2015. Uh, Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, and your cool stuff found. We answer as much as we possibly can share as much as you send us or as we come up with. And the goal is for us all together to learn several new things each time we get together and have some fun doing it. Some of you, some of you folks have even described us as click and clack of the Apple world and we'll take it. We like it. Uh, that's a good one. A couple of sponsors for this episode, connected data, uh, the makers of the transporter, have a new coupon code for us to share with you. MGG75 saves you 75 bucks off of a one or two terabyte transporter model. We'll talk about that in personal cloud a little bit later in the show, including a little story that we have that happened this weekend, actually, about the uh, about the transporter. iMazing at iMazing.com, one of the best apps we've found to manage the data on your iOS devices Coupon code MGG saves you 20% there. We'll talk more about that. Also, Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. Build your website and build it beautiful and use coupon code MGG to save you 10%. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And here in another part of Durham, New Hampshire, right next to Dave, is Pilot Pete. Glad to be here, guys. It's been a while. It's great to have you back, Pete. Yeah, it's nice uh, being had. Yeah. The, uh, the, in fact, the last podcast you were on went out. You were there. I, I was there. Uh, that's true. Yeah, it was, was the one that <laughs> as was. As was John. As was John. That's right. But we, it wasn't ours. It was the MyMac show that happened at Barry Falk's house at, at, uh, after MacStock at the barbecue that we talked about last week. It's so. a podcast horror day. What can I say? Hey, it's all right, man. You're getting like Jeff Gamut. You're on every show. Yeah. That's awesome. So, how goes it with you, Mr. Braun? Uh, I'm a little under the weather. So, pardon me if I'm not up to my usual energetic we'll get you topic man. self. It's all it's all. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, uh, Maybe I'll be up more on topic than usual. Uh, I do have something new and exciting, Dave, though. Go ahead. Directly related to our new workflow. Yeah. And then I'm going to include a tip in this. So you may recall... Um, you know, so we're using Evernote now and I was, I was, uh, uh, grumbling in a prior show that I, I couldn't really see what was happening. Number one, I'm, you know, getting along in years as we all are, but also number two, Dave, I had this relatively puny little screen, uh, a Samsung sync master 191 T plus 1280 by 1024 that I must've gotten 10 years ago. <laughs> Um, and it served my needs well, but I figure, you know what? It, it's time to get with it. Yes, I got it in 2004, believe it or not. And oh my gosh, uh, you know what I paid for it, Dave? I paid, and this was a good price back then, $640. Okay. That was a good price for a Samsung 19-inch yeah, uh, LCD. It was. It's true. Wow. Yeah. But then I'm like, you know what? I, I need a bigger screen. So, uh, you know, so I checked the specs for the Mac Mini here. The Mac Mini can support up to uh, 1920 by uh, 1200. And then I got an email from uh, Amazon warehouse deals. So like a lot of places, kind of like uh, Apple, they sell, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say it's their refurb store. 
uh, open box specials and stuff like that. And so I looked through to see what they had, to see if I could save a couple of bucks. And yes, I did. Um, so what I have right now, Dave, which more than meets my needs here, and it's supported on the Mac Mini, I got a 24-inch Asus uh, at 1920 by 1080. So not quite the full resolution, but, but certainly good enough. So, and it's also, you know, wide, wide screen or you, you know, wide form factor, 130 bucks. <laughs> That's awesome. You got a link for us that you'll put in the, uh, in the show notes there. Uh, I can find a link for the refurb store. The things c- come and go, um, uh, you know, ebb and flow. Okay. But I did want to offer something. So, you know, I plugged in the screen and, you know, displayed it the resolution that I wanted, but I was like, you know what? Something doesn't look quite right. Why is that? And I found out why, Dave. So I was looking. So um, in system preferences, displays, you're going to see two tabs. You're going to see a display tab. And what that's going to let you do, uh, it'll let you choose the resolution. It may say default for display, or you could say scaled, in which case it'll give you some other resolutions for the display. But then there's another thing, Dave, color. When I clicked on color, what was highlighted was not this monitor, which is a VS248, but what was highlighted was the old profile. It was called SyncMaster. Ah. And I'm like, well, that's no good. So number one, I, I guess it, the, the system, depending on what you're doing, uh, will choose the last one that, that you selected, which in this case was the old monitor. Sure. Um, so I highlighted VS248, and then all the colors looked, uh, looked a lot nicer. Then I'm like, you know what? There's all this garbage. There's all these profiles and I don't want to see them. Like, I don't want to see the SyncMaster profile anymore. Uh, from what I can tell, the system automatically creates it when it detects a sure. new monitor and it puts it in your list. Well, I don't want that. And the thing is, Dave, that uh, uh, system preference screen doesn't have an option to delete or at least the one that I had, the, the, the delete profile button was, was uh, grayed out. Huh. I'm like, well, that's annoying. Was so it because you, you, you had to select a different profile for the monitor and then you could go delete it? I don't know. Uh, okay. Uh, so, so I researched online and I'm not the only one that has this problem. So it's apparently just the way Apple does it. Sure. If you want to get rid of profiles that are for monitors that you no longer have or no longer need, you want to go to library, color sync, profiles, displays, and you're going to see a list of the profiles from the monitor or monitors that you have or had. If you want to clean that list out, you go there and you just whack, whack the files. And that's it. That works. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it worked for me. I saw like, and actually I saw like two or three sync master entries and I I don't know why. So I got rid of those. So uh, just to keep the only things I see in there, I think are default system things like Adobe RGB, generic RGB profile. I think those are built in and you can't get rid of those. But if you want to get rid of other, I guess, user created ones. Yeah, I'm very happy. I mean, I can see everything beautifully in uh, Evernote now. I can see the list and, you know, the text on the, uh, on the agenda items is, is uh, at a size where I can read it now. Where it's, where it's reasonable. Yeah. Hey, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and it's, it's great for, for gaming and stuff, too. Oh, uh, yeah. Good stuff. Cool. Well, uh, I, you know what I want to do is I want to talk about our first sponsor of the show, which is Connected Data, the makers of Transporter at filetransporterstore.com. In fact, that's the right place to go. So they make this little device that sits on your home network and essentially is your personal Dropbox. And the cool part, you get software for your Mac, software for your iOS device, software for Windows, and there's no setup required. You just plug this thing in 
and install the software and, and you're good to go. It's pre-configured to do exactly this. And it, it's, it's actually pretty amazing. And what's cool is you have your own Dropbox, but you can have separate folders and you can share those folders and you can share them with people that have their own transporter, right? You know, so like you and I have a Mac keycap folder that we can put stuff in and Pete, you've got a transporter <laughs> and you've, you're subscribed yeah. to that. Uh, but you don't see any of the other stuff I have or that, and I don't see any of the other stuff John well, has. You don't think I do. That's right. Yeah, exactly. No, you don't. And that's the cool thing. Security that, on it's awesome. Yep. And, and, and then even if you don't have a transporter, you can share files. In fact, this weekend we had a, uh, we had an offsite uh, with the TMO uh, staff out in Colorado and uh, it was actually gorgeous. We, we rented a little house up in Breckenridge and we were talking about, uh, some movies and Kelly wanted to share something that she had and it was big and uh, you know, we, we wanted to find a way to do it. She doesn't have a, a transporter, but Jeff does. And I do, but she was a, we Jeff just invited all of us, regardless of whether or not we had transporters already to this folder that he made called, you know, movies. And then, and then she, when she got home, she put this thing in there and, and it instantly showed up on my transporter and I'm presuming Jeff's transporter and all of that. And it, so it, it, it works. And once you've got one of these, you can be the manager of the cloud for all of the people that you want to share documents with. So you don't need to have, you don't need everybody in your group to have one of these for you to benefit from getting one. And here's the thing. So you can get them, uh, you can actually get them, with no drive for 160 bucks, 159 bucks. And then you can get them with drives ranging from uh, 500 gigs up to two terabytes. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, coupon code MGG75 saves you 75 bucks off the one terabyte or two terabyte versions. And if I'm doing my math right, that means the one terabyte version is cheaper for you than the uh, 500 gig version. And, uh, and the two terabyte version gets, uh, gets a lot cheaper as well. So you got to check this out. Uh, go to filetransporterstore.com. That's the easiest way to get there. You could go to filetransporter.com and then of course go to the store, but the coupon MGG seven five is good at, uh, at their store right online there. So you got to check it out. Thanks so much to connected data for being a sponsor of this show since I believe since their inception, in fact. So, uh, they're friends of ours and, uh, the product is rock solid. Uh, you know, they've been around for a while. They've really perfected things and it it just it just works i don't think about it and it's great for doing things like this where you're sharing files but big files you know multiple gigabyte files you don't everybody not everybody has cloud storage that's going to hold it all you need is one of you and then everybody else can yeah, uh, in, in fact i'd like to share a quick use story of it just this week i used to uh, uh i'm doing a real estate deal as you know and i kept trying to mail email the file back to the real estate agent and he couldn't get it it was too big so i put it in a transporter for transporter folder and shared it with him and there it was. I didn't want to put it on Dropbox because it had social security numbers and sure. bank account numbers on it. Nice. No problem putting that on Transporter because it's in my basement and he can link to it. FileTransporterStore.com. All right, John, why don't you take us to Adam, if you would, please? I can take us to Adam. Sweet. Uh-oh. Why am I getting this here? Oh, boy. Well, I don't know. What, everything okay over there? Yeah, I'm getting an Evernote uh, screen. Reminding me of something that I don't need to be reminded of here. So, Adam writes, <clears throat> and I can see it in big, beautiful text. Guys, here's one I don't think that's been addressed before. Before upgrading the MacBook Pros in my office, I'd like to boot into the recovery partition and use this utility 
to make a snapshot of the internal drive or the primary user's home folder to a disk image on an external hard drive in case something goes wrong during the install. I've never, never needed to do such a restore, but better to be prepared and not need it than the other way around. Agreed. My problem is that the MacBook Pro wants to go to sleep after a time, and since it is not a full version of the OS, I can't tell it to stay awake, other than fabricating some small device to tap the space bar every 60 seconds. <laughs> is there a way to make it stay awake for the duration of the backup imaging? I actually like the solution of uh, the proposed solution of making a small device to tap the space bar. I'm, I'm going to think we'll, we'll just end it here. Huh. No, here's how you could do this. So when you boot into recovery, which uh, you do by uh, holding down. Uh, I actually, can we stop uh, for a second? I, I, I just want to. Sure. I, I like he's got a tip here, right? There's a tip baked into this question. You know, he boots into the recovery partition and makes a snapshot of the drive or at least the user folder. That's an awesome idea. I mean, I, I like this. This is fantastic. So I just wanted to I wanted to highlight that. I didn't want that to, to slip by in passing. That's a great tip, even though maybe you didn't intend it that way, Adam. So thank you. All right. Moving well, you know, on. I like it, too, because what I would do, Dave, is I would probably run Carbon Copy Cloner and make a, a sure. copy live of my data. What this does is because you're booted into recovery, that partition is not actively in use. So uh, I, I would say this is the way to get the purest. Yes. Total version of a backup. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. Anyway, I just, I just wanted to highlight that. I didn't. Yeah. Didn't so want here's, <clears throat> so here's the issue though. Well, I was like, well, why don't you just go to system preferences and just go to energy saver and say, don't sleep. Well, that's the problem. Recovery doesn't have a system preferences. So what to do? What to do? Well, but it still sleeps when you're in recovery mode. I didn't even think about that. Well, one thing yeah. that bugs me is that it does sleep because when you're actively doing something, I don't think the system should be sleeping. Like when you're actively creating a disk image. That doesn't sound quite right to me. Sleep is supposed to engage when the system is idle. Is right? that a true sleep? Or is it just monitor going down? I don't know. You know yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, but you're right. Well, it is. It's a hardware setting for sleep. So if if recovery mode doesn't intentionally make a change to that, the system will just go to sleep. Well, so, it does. Yeah. Yeah. How can you tell if you don't have you tell, a system preference? I'm going to tell you. So when you're in your, when you're in recovery, there is a utilities menu, and one of the utilities that you can choose is terminal. So what you do is you go into the terminal, and then you run the following command. So if you want to see what the settings are, Dave, and I did this under Yosemite, you type PM set, which is power management settings, space dash G. I don't know why they use G, but that lists all of the settings. And what I found, at least on my system, Dave, is that both sleep and disk sleep were set to 10. Yep. Okay. Ugh. Okay. Well, how do you set that? Uh, how do you make it not 10? Well, you go in there and you say PM set space sleep space zero. And that makes it so the system won't sleep. Nice. Yeah, PM set's a cool thing. Alex in the chat room says uh, if you want to learn more about it, type man space PM set at the terminal and it'll show you all the switches and commands and all that good stuff. And, um, and also a BSD junkie in the terminal suggested a piece of software 
it wouldn't work in this case because you're not, you can't run third party software in recovery mode this way. But if you want to keep your Mac awake without changing your energy saver settings, um, you can use a piece of software from Lighthead software called Caffeine. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it does. It works really well. It just puts a little thing in your menu bar and you click it and it'll, your Mac will stay awake forever. And then all you do is click it again and it goes back to normal sleep mode. So handy little piece of software. Again, not, not, it, 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 you know, doesn't solve this particular problem, but, uh, but related and good. So good stuff. You got anything else on this one, John, or is it time to move on? Yeah, that's about it. All right. Well, then with that, I believe it's time to move on to Devin. And uh, Devin says, uh, I've always just used my NAS as a backup for iTunes and iPhotos and my iTunes and iPhotos libraries. So I never worried too much about data loss or issues with the NAS. However, I know you mentioned once on the show, the right way to store certain items on the NAS is with a sparse bundle. Should I be putting my libraries inside a sparse bundle and mounting them each time? This seems like a hassle with drawbacks uh, in limited Synology integration, but I'm not sure what the risks are. Is it highly risky to have multiple computers looking at one iTunes library uh, or, or is that just uh, that's just sitting in a regular shared folder on my NAS? So there's a couple of questions here. Uh, first of all, storing things on your NAS for the most part is totally fine. Um, and w- when you migrate from iPhoto to photos, because of the way it does all these hard links and stuff, the, your best scenario is to have the data on your local drive uh, so that it can do the hard links properly and then move the new photos library back over to your NAS. But I've done it with iPhoto and I've done it with photos uh, on my NAS reading directly from it. And there's, there hasn't been a problem. We've got some stuff to share that, that, that some warnings about that. Uh, but I, I've, I've done it and, and haven't had any issues with it. Uh, Running the same iTunes library, though, from multiple computers can be an issue regardless of where it's shared from. Uh, if you're simply so here's two use cases and either one of them could get you into trouble. If all you're doing is storing your library there, which is what would happen if you went on two computers and pointed the um, the iTunes library, you know, in the iTunes preferences, the data folder to the NAS. uh what, what can happen is that doesn't store your library files, so the things that hold your playlist, the things that hold all the metadata and, and the indexes of what you have are not stored um, there with it. So you're going to have two copies. If you've got two machines pointing to that same data uh, repository, you're going to have two separate library files or sets of library files pointing to one data repository. That's going to get you into trouble because if you add something with one, it doesn't know it's on the other uh, this is, this is, it's, this has been the Holy grail since the day we started this show that we've wanted to solve and nothing really solves it. Super sync kind of gets close and that's probably your best bet. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but, um, and if you're going to do this with the NAS, that's the way to do it, but it's really not optimal. Well, so, go ahead. I would say I, what I've tried is I've put, uh, I, I put everything in that iTunes library on my NAS drive and yep. open it from there. Now it's a little slower across there. But when the other computer opens it, it goes to the NAS drive and opens it. And in theory, I think it's changing the database out there on the NAS drive, not opening it locally and pointing the data and, po- and pointing to the data over on the NAS drive. But it doesn't. But it, I, it well, so you am could I setting myself up for something I'm not aware of. You are because okay. I don't think you're. You got to check by default. It's not going to be putting your your library files out there. It's just going to put the data out there. So it has no way of knowing. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, but you can. I mean, you can make it put the library files out there. It's just not. It's not. But even then, if you've got two machines, you can't have two machines reading and writing the same library files. Oh, right. Absolutely. But like the iTunes library and the ITDB yeah. files and all that, they're the XML file, they're on the NAS drive with, okay. with the whole library. And so that's kind of how I point to it. And like I have my server in the basement. And yep. it's, it's looking at a NAS drive, actually. Oh. But then my Apple TV is looking at that. even Via, via your Mac via, Mini server. Via my Mac Mini server. That's totally not. fine. Okay. That's different. Yeah, the problem would be is if you had two machines oh, pointing. Oh, they can't open it at the same time. That I know. Because it just locks you out and says, hey, you know, nice try, but you're not looking at this because someone else is already doing it. Because somebody else is in. But if one machine is off, then the other machine can go in and use that iTunes library all day long. It's true. Um, You just got to be really careful of that. Yes. How did you move your library files over there and get them to stick? Just cut and pasted them. (laughs) And it reads and writes from there? Yeah, as far as I know, it's always done it for me. I've I've been lucky, I guess. Now, I, I have also, on occasion, tried to open it when the server has it open on my laptop, and my laptop goes, yeah, it's locked. You can't do that. Yeah, so it's doing so, it. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, that's, uh, yeah, all right. So I've been fortunate, but. Yeah, it's not I'm built to work that way. Yeah. Well, and you, so you you can get into trouble, but as well, you found. My photo used to let you open it both at the same oh, time, and then you were uh, yeah. totally horked when you, you know, tried that's to right. save something. That's right. <laughs> there yeah. you go, your photos. And, and it, it's, it's. Um, so we talked about this when photos first came out and, uh, and Brian Webster from, uh, uh fat cat software, which makes, uh, well now it, he makes power photos, but he al- always made iPhoto library manager. He sent us a note. Um, we were talking about Dropbox on that show. And he said, the main issue with Dropbox is that there's no way to maintain a lock on the database. It, as, as Pete was saying, it's, it's not built to, uh, to do this. And if you're, if the files aren't syncing, the, the difference between Dropbox and a NAS drive um, is that your NAS drive is, if you have two computers pointing at it, they're going to see exactly the same thing a hundred percent of the time. Whereas if with Dropbox, two computers syncing a, a, a file, especially if it's big files or lots of files, they're not always going to be, synced up right because it takes time for for the syncing to happen so there's no way to maintain a lock on those files and know that you've got things in one way or the other so keeping your photo library in dropbox not so good uh transporter has a great way of syncing it actually oh and and so that that's yet another perk there for um for transporters for photos yep oh that'll be good to know then because i've got a lot of space there and of course i'm not waiting you do that right john you have you have your photos synced to your transporter is that right um, or are you just doing your desktop folder and stuff? No. Okay. Let me look here. No, let me look at my transporter. So transporter does offer. So transporter preferences, special folders. I have documents and music enabled, okay. but not pictures. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so there is that, that option there, but even still, you got to be careful that you're not trying to open it, you know, in two different places at once. Right. right. Um, so that, that's the, that's the issue there. Uh, Brian goes on to talk about how uh, how he says as, lo- as long as you're using the connecting the right way. Now he says you need to be connecting over AFP, which is Apple's file protocol. That's not the current that's not the current way that that to, that computers connect to each other. If two Yosemite computers will use SMB, but um, but AFP uh, AFP is typically what NAS drives are going to use anyway, as we've as we found, even if when they, even if they support both. Uh, SMB and AFP. So you're, you're probably going to be fine. We've, we've, I've reached back out to Brian to find out exactly why, what, what the specifics of AFP are. 
and why why he says that. But um, but yeah, you you don't want to you don't want to get yourself into too much trouble there, Devin. Uh, but it is fine if you're only, if you're the only one opening that library, you can be certain. Like my wife and I have a kind of a meta library that that we share that's stored on the NAS drive. She opens it most of the time. If I'm going to open it, I ask her, are you out of iPhoto? Okay, don't go into iPhoto. I'm going to go in and, and we we very intentionally coordinate that. For the most part, though, I don't go into that master library and it keeps us safe. And an, a quick tip on that, Dave, yep. is I set up notification my notification center to let me know when I'm seeing new files hop in there. Yep. So I can tell them my wife is editing photos and I photo. Now I don't know about photos yet because I haven't fully transferred over yet. Sure. Because of an issue I had, but, yep. um, but that's where you can tell the other person is open and they're, they're editing stuff. And so I would always call and go, Hey, uh, are you done? So I could get in there. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's the right way to do it. All righty. Uh, let's talk about Mike here. And uh, Mike has a great question. Mike asks, uh, on an iPhone, is Siri and the dictation mic in the keyboard the same thing? In my mind, it's not. I turned Siri off in settings, but I can still do dictation in notes and other apps. They might share underlying code and hardware, but it seems to me text-to-speech is one thing, and Siri uses text-to-speech at a whole new level. But I've never seen the watch firsthand. Is Siri the only access to the text-to-speech engine on a watch? Is the distinction between Siri and text-to-speech totally blurred there? And is it correct to say that a watch app uses, or any app, uses Siri? Okay, so this is a good question, because I, I hear people confuse these two things all the time. In my I agree with you that Siri is the engine that takes commands from speech and acts upon them, right? You can say, what are the, what's the score of the game or, you know, search for this or text Pete. You know, if I, if I want to text Pete, I can say text Pete, come on over at four forty-five so we can set up for the show. Right. And it'll create a text message to Pete. And, and then actually the phone reads it back to you and, and sends it off. Uh, that's Siri dictation or text to speech, which you hit when you're in, which effectively just replaces the keyboard. So if you're in notes or mail or something or messages and you hit that little text to speech button, the little microphone, you can dictate something. But if you say, if I, if at that point I say, please text Pete, come over at four forty-five, it will write out, please text Pete, come over at four forty-five, Or it might say, please uh, test peach to come over at four forty-five. Right. I mean, it, you know, it sometimes gets it wrong, but it, the, when you're using the microphone, it's just taking straight dictation and it's not taking uh, commands. So, yes, they are two separate things. And good news on the watch. They are also two separate things. You have the ability to talk to Siri and issue commands and interact. And also, if the app allows it, uh, you can dictate into the watch and have it actually just spell out text. And you can do that like in messages and, and things like that. One thing I will point out, though, while we're on this subject. In the car, I have found the Apple Watch to be a massive distraction. This was a surprise to me because I had a Pebble uh, and I really liked. In fact, I thought it was safer in the car and felt found it safer in the car because I would get a notification. I wasn't tempted to you know, pick up my phone or something. I just glance at my watch. I see the notification on the Pebble. I could do nothing more. There was no way to reply. There was no two way interaction with these. And so it was fine. I'd see it and I'd drive. And if there was some problem or something, I could, you know, pull over or maybe trigger a phone call, uh, you know, elsewhere, like from the dash or something. With the Apple Watch, though, 
there is the ability and therefore temptation to reply because you can reply with text speech, right? So I, you know, I can see, I get a, a text from, from my wife or something. I hit reply and then I dictate my reply, which is something I've done with the iPhone for a long, long time. And it works great because what happens on the iPhone after you dictate your reply with Siri is it reads it back to you. It says, I will text, you know, Lisa. And then it reads out what you said. And then it asks, shall I send it? And you can answer yes. But on the no, watch, your God, don't send that. Right. Or, or, yeah. Or, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Uh, the problem with the watch is there's no speech. It just, at least, at least the way mine's configured, you've got to read it. You have to read it. And so you've dictated this thing and now you have to read the watch. And it, it, I found it. I mean, I, you know, I caught myself doing it. I was like, dude, this is terrible. So now I, now I just don't, I mean, I've I heard don't do it. Totally though. That the watch is serious far smarter on the watch than she is on the iPhone. That's anecdotal. Do you, do you, what's your opinion on that? Um, I actually have had good luck with text to speech in both. Okay. Yeah. So it may be microphone placement and all that. I wear my watch, uh, with the crown on the left hand side, I wear my yeah. watch on my left hand and the crown on the left hand side. So not the classic watch orientation, but, uh, but a far more ergonomic one. Cause now I can operate the crown with my, with my thumb. The reason I mention this is the microphone and speaker are on the opposite side of the watch from the crown. So if you want a Dick Tracy style, talk into your wrist, you are talking straight into the microphone. If you lift your, your watch to your face with, with your hand up, you're left-handed. You should wear your watch on your right arm. I am, uh, I am right-handed. I don't know. Why did I think you were left-handed? Okay. Uh, I have a lot of mannerisms that, okay. uh, that would indicate that I'm left-handed. Yeah. I've been told by several people that I probably should have been. I just always assumed you were, but I, you know, I never even paid attention to it. But no. that's, that's why I wear my watch on my right arm. Right. I'm left-handed. So. Yeah. But if you did that, the default would be that the crown would be on the wrong side, uh, still on the, on the, it would be on the left. It would be toward your wrist or toward your nice hand. If you could flip it upside and down and the orientation on it. You can. New. Yeah, you do. Well, you just set it in the app. You say oh. I'm using left-handed crown or right, right-sided, left-handed, left-hand wearing, left-side crown, oh. right-side crown. It's all right there. It's beautiful. Okay. Yeah. No, they beautiful. thought about all this. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Yeah. Because otherwise it, the watch would be upside down. Yeah, my knobs are on the wrong side on all my conventional watches. Right. Oh, that's, you wouldn't have that problem with the yeah. Apple Watch. Yeah. So anyway. Well, okay. There you go. Now I got to go get one. Now you, just, you don't have a choice. So there you go. Any thoughts on this, John? Mm. I think you woke him up. I know. I feel bad for John's age. <laughs> John's having a rough. John, John doesn't usually get sick. He doesn't have kids around or anything to to keep him, you know, well versed in in operating through life with a, keep his immune a, system a, active. A permanent head cold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think I'll make it. Okay. Good. I do want to talk about our second sponsor today, which is Squarespace, and uh, Squarespace. It's an awesome engine. They, it, it's just fantastic what they've done. You go and visit squarespace.com. Please visit squarespace.com slash MGG when you do this so that that way they know uh, we've sent you and they appreciate that. And obviously so do we. So you visit squarespace.com MGG and you, you start by picking a template for the web, the type of website you want to build. And then you just dig in further and these templates are gorgeous and you can just, you just go. In fact, do this now as you're listening, if you like, and, uh, and just check out the, the types of stuff that they've built. These are gorgeous templates. And every one of them is, is what's called responsive. And that means that it looks, it looks good on a desktop, you know, full-size display. It looks good on an iPad display. 
and it looks good on a phone, it changes as you go from one to the other, as it should. You know, you don't want the full desktop experience on a phone. And these are all very fluid. And as the screen size changes, so does the uh, the layout appropriately while still maintaining your your style and your theme. So you go and pick one of these templates and then you start, just start going and customizing it. And you can put your own pictures in. Uh, if you don't like their stock artwork and it's just simple, you just drag the stuff in from the desktop into your browser and it works great. They really, really know what they're doing over there and they've, they've done a fantastic job uh, just making this such a fluid process. And, uh, and you know, you can, if you have a WordPress blog that you've been fighting with and it's been a headache for you and you don't want to deal with that. Well, guess what? You can import all your old posts from your WordPress blog right into your Squarespace blog. So you just hop right over to it and you're good to go. Squarespace gives you 14 days for free to, uh, to get your stuff set up and make sure that it's going to work for you. And then when you're ready to buy, use coupon code MGG because that way you save 10%. And this is cheap. Their plans start at eight bucks a month. That's by the way, that's before your 10% discount from uh, the MGG code, right? So eight bucks a month. And if you sign up for a year, which you're going to want to do, you get a free domain from them. So you get your domain registered and it, you know, it's all just hosted there and it's all just handled right inside your web browser. That's the beautiful part about it uh, because you're, you're editing your website inside the same app that you're going to be viewing your website with. So there's no, you don't have to worry about FTPing. You don't have to worry about anything else. You just go and build your site and launch it. And then you can edit and post new stuff. And they've got great iOS apps, man. The new iOS apps that they have are awesome. You can post. I have posted blog posts. In fact, I think the most current blog post on my DaveTheNerd.com blog uh, was posted from my iPhone while Lisa was driving us to Boston uh, last week. And, and they've got metrics app uh, where you can uh, where you can look at your your stats and see what people are uh, see. You know how many people are visiting. And they've even got like a little notes app that you can, you can just take little notes in and stuff too. They've really, I mean, it's just, and they're all just gorgeous, really simple and elegant, uh, beautiful stuff. So you got to check it out. Squarespace.com slash MGG coupon code MGG to save you 10% once you buy Squarespace, build it beautiful. And that brings us to Giles, I believe, John. See how we do here with Giles. So Giles says, uh, I've been using, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase what's going on with Giles here. So, uh, because it's a big, long trail that we've been through. Giles has two computers. He's got, uh, two iMacs, let's say, I think that's what they are. In fact, I'm, I'm not even making that up. And he's got a Wi-Fi network for his home and that's how he gets on the internet and that's how his computers can talk to each other. But he wants to transfer files quickly between these two, uh, iMacs and they're next to each other. And so he thought, I'll use Thunderbolt Bridge, right? Thunderbolt Bridge, you see it when you have a Thunderbolt equipped Mac, you look in network preferences or system preferences network, and right there in there is uh, a thing called Thunderbolt Bridge. And in fact, if you read up on this, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just, a, it's treated as just another network interface. You plug Thunderbolt cables from two Macs into each other. They create their own IP addresses, and then you've got this super fast network between them. Problem is, even though Giles sets it up this way, it still transfers over Wi-Fi much, much more slowly. And we've been back and forth with this with Giles for a little while. The first thing, of course, that you want to do on both of those Macs is you want to tell it to prioritize 
a Thunderbolt bridge over Wi-Fi. And you do that by going into System Preferences, Network, hit the little gear at the bottom of the left column, and choose Set Service Order. And you drag the Thunderbolt bridge to the top. This, theoretically, will prioritize that. And you do it on both, and then, theoretically, even though they see this, you know, each other on that, they'll do it. Well, that hasn't been working for Giles. And I think part of it has to do with Bonjour and how all of that happens because he's just connecting to the machines as they appear in the sidebar, which is what you would expect. But when it doesn't work that way, sometimes you got to get a little more specific. What you can do is go in to network, uh, system preferences network, and on one machine, look at Thunderbolt bridge and see what the IP address is. And then go to the other machine in the finder, choose go, choose connect to server and put in something along the lines of AFP colon slash slash or SMB colon slash slash, depending on which protocol, but try it with AFP. It should be fine. AFP colon slash slash. And then the IP address that you saw from the other machine, this will connect over that IP. And that should solve this problem because you're not just telling it connect to that computer and letting your Mac decide which identity of that computer to use. If you put in the specific IP address, it's just going to connect to that IP. It doesn't matter what other addresses or network personalities that computer has. It's going to, it's going to go ahead and put these right in there. It'll force it to go that way. So that should do it. If that works, Giles, what you might want to do is set your own IP addresses there because the problem is these are going to change. The, these these self-assigned IPs that happen when you just plug two interfaces into each other change or could change every time the computer boots up or every time you activate that interface. And that could be a pain in the neck if you've got to do it uh, this way. So what you might want to do is set them both to a, a fixed address or each to a fixed address in the same range. Um, you know, and, and you've got to look and be careful that you're not setting it to the same range that your Wi-Fi is set to. But let's say that your Wi-Fi is set to 192.168.0.x as its IP range. Well, then for your Thunderbolts, you might set one of them to 192.168.1.x and the other one, not, you know, 1.1. And then 192.168.1.2. And then that way, you know, they're always fixed. And yet, they're not going to overlap with the other things. My question, though, about this is, should you also go into system preferences sharing and make sure that file sharing is checked on? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. kind of assumed it was oh, okay. because he yeah. was able to okay. share, just oh, okay. not over the oh, right yeah, interface. Over the Wi-Fi. Okay. But, I'm just, uh, but yeah, that, no, yeah. that's, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. Stupid question time's over. No, no. There are no stupid questions, are, just stupid questioners. That's right. <laughs> no, it was buried in the, in the first pass of the question that he said, yeah, oh, by the way, uh, sharing is on, file oh, sharing okay. is on. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, that, but, it's, but it, it's part of the, that's important. Absolutely. Because that'll slow you down. Uh, yeah. Well, then it just won't appear. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on this, John? No, it, uh, it gets tricky when you have multiple interfaces to try to prioritize them. So uh, I'm with you. You got to force the hand sometimes and be very explicit in what you want to connect to. Right. To right. make sure it doesn't make the wrong decision. Because sometimes it does. And I, th I think you're right. It was like, oh, okay, I see that by uh, probably Bonjour or something like that. And I'm going to use that connection. Yeah. Oh, well, no. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, fun stuff, my friends. 
Shall we, uh, shall we move to Andy? I think we should, right? Let's, uh, let's find Andy out here. While we're on the network side, Andy has an interesting question. Now, his use case is probably uh, only Andy's, but, but it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and my guess is that there's going to be uh, enough of a, well, anyway, here we go. Uh, Andy says, at work, I use sound systems that are controlled by a Mac or an iPad over a network. Up to this point, I've always had one router and base station, but now things get more complicated. In my main rack, I have a Mac Mini, an Airport Extreme, and an audio mixer, which is controlled by the Mac Mini or by my iPad. Simple enough. The problem is I'm in the process of buying another Mac or iPad-controlled mixer. This one will not be installed in my main rack, and my current plan is to put another router and Airport Express in with it, but that's open to change. If I'm only using the old system or the new system, then it's easy. They work independently as normal, and they need to work independently as normal. However, the problem is that sometimes they'll be used independently, and sometimes they'll be used together. I really want to set things up in a way that I don't have to reconfigure anything. Uh, Not the routers, not the clients, not the mixers. And I just want them to work, whether I'm using both simultaneously or each one separate. It says, in my perfect world, the two routers would identify when they are both present and act as a single bridge network with IP addresses assigned by DHCP and also work fine with DHCP addresses when they are being used separately. But I can't come up with any way to do this. Do you have any ideas? I do have an idea. I think, I think I've cracked this, this particular egg. But I have to make an assumption to do it. And that is, the assumption is that you can get an Ethernet cable between the two racks. If you can, then I have a magic answer that will allow both to operate on the same subnet and, and yet work. And the trick is to, uh, I'll go through the steps, but the trick is to set them both up on the same subnet, but just slightly off from each other so they don't get in the way. And then it doesn't matter. So the first thing you're going to do is set each of them uh, in airport utility, other in, other internet and connect, set each of them to static addresses and set the IPv4 address of one of them to, again, you know, you're going to pick whatever range you want. But let's say it's 192.168.10. That's, your, that's the range that we're going to use for this example. So you set one router to 10.1 and the other to 10.2. Uh, and then that way they will never interfere with each other when they're on the same network. Uh, save, make the subnet mask on both of them, 255.255.255.0. Leave all the other things blank. So now you've got two routers that can live independently or, or, or together on the same subnet. Great. That's step one. Now we have to make it so that they can give out IP addresses and not fight with each other about that. So an airport utility, you go into network router mode and set both airport routers to DHCP only. This is like bridge mode plus, right? Uh, DHCP only allows you to have to hand out addresses, but otherwise all your ethernet ports are the same. It doesn't expect to get any internet access or anything like that. It makes it handy. It's exactly what you want here. Uh, While still on that same screen, and this part's important, set one router's DHCP range to be, say, .10.100 to .10.150, and then the other router's range to, say, .10.151 to .10.200. The ranges are, uh, I mean, you got to keep them below 250 and above above 2 because you've got routers at .1 and .2. 
the size of the range is if you know you're only going to have 10 or 15 devices, maybe set it to just, you know, 20 uh, on your range. It doesn't, the size doesn't matter. Just make sure they are not overlapping. So you've got one that's going to hand out addresses from 100 to 150 and another that's going to hand out addresses from 151 to 200. But the good news is that all of those addresses, because of the subnet mask, can see each other. So it doesn't matter which router hands your iPad an address. Anything connected to both, again, as long as there's an Ethernet cable between the two routers, is going to be seen. So you've got this perfectly bridged network. Um, and then and then what you want to do is, in airport utility, go to wireless and set network mode to create a wireless network on both of them. And that way they're, uh, they can operate independently. And then you use the same wireless network name and same wireless security for both. You can probably leave in wireless options dot dot dot. There is a section where you can set the channel. If you want to set these to, to two different channels. So same name, same password, different channels. That's fine. But you can probably you're probably safe enough to leave them both at automatic on their channels. And that that should get you there uh, because they, they, they do. They are smart enough to look around and, and grab a different channel. Uh and then that's it. Then you plug, plug in the, make sure the ethernet cable's there. And if it's there, you've got one network. It doesn't matter which DHCP server happens to jump first. It doesn't matter which one, uh, which wireless, which router the, it connects to wirelessly because you've got them all bridged together. And I think I got it. Send Dave money for that one, folks. <laughs> I'm telling you. If, if you've ever tried to run two routers, you know, it's like trying to invent a time machine half the time. I swear to God. So. Oh, that's brilliant, Dave. Right? I mean, yeah. I think... It, it, it's simple. It's obvious and simple, but it's not obvious. It's not obvious. No, at first when he wrote it, I was like, oh, yeah. dude. Like, well, hang on. And this is where bullheaded persistence comes into... Uh, no piece of plastic's going to outsmart me. That's Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think I'm missing anything. I don't think so. Anyway, John, what do you think about this? I'm with you. Got a... Uh, the key is separating the THCP ranges, I think, is, uh, is yeah. a clever, clever part here. Yeah. Otherwise, everybody's going to step all over each other, and it's just going to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, you're right. That's the, that's the magic trick. The rest of it kind of falls into place by itself. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, I think we have, uh, we still have plenty of time here, of course. Uh, we talked in recent shows about um, bridging two distant networks together over Wi-Fi. And I've talked about my uncle up in Maine and he's got those focused antennas and the routers and, and it's, it's doable and convoluted, but convoluted. And Chad says he has a simpler way. Hello, John and Dave, your wireless buddy, Chad calling. I was just listening to one of your recent shows where you were giving uh, a writer some advice on how to extend his Wi-Fi network across the street to a, a little spot that he wants to extend things to. You're relating to your, your uncle's project up in Maine. Uh, there's an easier way to do this, I think. Uh, while your solution certainly does work and can be fun to tinker, uh, you then start getting into problems where you've got to keep your antenna cables relatively short because there's a fair amount of loss in there. You're kind of hacking something together with a lot of pieces of hardware uh, that you might not need. Uh, Ubiquity, UBNT.com. It makes carrier class equipment that a lot of the wireless ISPs use. Uh, and it's relatively inexpensive. I think you could do this entire project 
for probably $200 or less, uh, getting all the hardware you need. You want to look at their, uh, their nano bridge, nano beam, uh, type equipment. Uh, they've got a couple other pieces of equipment and they, one looks kind of like a shoe where it doesn't have a parabolic dish, uh, but it's got just kind of a flat surface. You just point these things at each other. They're power over Ethernet, uh, so you can put them up in the eaves or in a tree or on a pole. It's real easy uh, to mount and point these things. They've got external signal strength indicators on them. These software, they've all got individual uh, web pages uh, for configuration in them. It's pretty easy to navigate that and figure them out. And so you just want to put these things into bridge mode, point them at each other, connect them to your uh, your existing network, and you're going to be good to go. Uh, it'll be a lot easier. It's carrier-grade equipment. Uh, it's pretty proven technology. And out of the box, it's going to work instead of hacking together some hardware. And I think you'll find you can get this stuff online at Amazon. And each end is almost always going to be under $100 for the equipment itself. Uh, so just an idea, UBNT.com is their website, Ubiquity the equipment, uh, find the model information you want on their website, and then just go type that into Amazon, and you'll see thousands of reviews uh, and suggestions. They've got great YouTube videos on how to set these things up. So I think you'll find that to be a little bit better luck for you. Thanks, Chad. Man, Chad, Chad, you want to talk about smart networking, guys. That's one of them right there. Chad is a Wi-Fi master, uh, and I wish I could tell you about all the other stuff that Chad does. But anyway, um, it, it's fantastic. Uh, these things and and he said he did he sent us an amazon link uh those ubiquity uh let's see the nano station m is 48 bucks at uh at amazon so if you if you need to start doing like real you know if your only option is to bridge wirelessly this is absolutely the right stuff it's like he said carrier grade and yet um not expensive at all Uh, you know you're gonna spend more than that hacking together the crazy you know uh, antenna solution, I think. So, it's good, right, John? I may get some. Yeah. What do you need them for? <laughs> I don't. But okay. Know. Yeah. Because they're tech and they're cool. Well, there's that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, John. You want to take us to Lars? Why not? So Lars writes, "Hi, Dave and John. Greetings from an avid fan in Denmark. Wow." I've been listening to your show for about a year, ever since I bought my first and not last Mac and keep getting useful info from it. I believe he means the show and not the Mac. Though it could be both. Yeah. I think it's both. I think it's the show. Yeah. But that's okay. Lately, I've seen some strange behavior with one of my Gmail accounts. It keeps getting the status inactive. And he pasted a screenshot showing that he gets a particular icon next to one of his accounts. Um, very often when I run mail, it will ask me to type in my password for this email account again. I do so and everything looks fine until the next time I wake my Mac from hibernation. Then it has lost the access again and I can start and I have to start all over. Any idea why it won't remember? Yes. I'm almost certain I know why it won't remember, Dave. Awesome. So you may ask yourself, how do I work this? But you may also ask yourself, (laughs) (laughs) No, sorry, I won't go down that path. All right, you may ask yourself, where are my passwords, my email passwords stored? It's a mystery. Where? I mean, you type them in, they're stored. They got to be stored somewhere. I'm going to tell you where they're stored. 
And I think where he should look, and I think where, where he will find chaos, because I actually found chaos recently when I looked at mine, Dave. So if you run keychain access, um, you're going to see uh, two, uh, you should on the left see two sidebars of, uh, or categories, keychain and category. And under passwords, in all likelihood, what you're going to see, or at least what I see, Dave, and I'm, I think everybody should see, if you uh, have your email passwords stored, uh, well, you got to look carefully. So you're going to see name. You're going to see a name column. Uh, so once you click on passwords, you're going to see a name column. Then you're going to see the name of an email server. Uh, and in this case, it's probably going to be something like smtp.gmail.com. Or maybe imap.gmail.com, if you're assuming that you're using IMAP. Here's what I think is a problem, Dave. And I just verified this in my keychain. Keychain or mail, I don't know who causes this grief, but you're going to start seeing multiple entries in there. And I think that's where the problem is. And I, I actually just looked at mine, Dave. And every now and then I'll come across this problem as well. And I think what happens is mail and keychain get confused. And it prompts you for the password, and it, you shouldn't have to type it in again. Once you enter it once uh, in mail, and typically there's a checkbox when you enter any password, it'll say, hey, you want me to store it in the keychain? And you should say yes, unless you want to type it in every time, in which case you would, you would not check that checkbox. But that's what I think is happening. Now, the other thing that could be happening, Dave, is that the keychain may be damaged uh, or, or somehow corrupt. How do you fix that? Well, in keychain access, if you click on the keychain access menu, there will be something called keychain first aid. You run that. Um, it's going to prompt you for a username and password, I guess, uh, an administrator. Uh, and there's two options, verify and repair. Verify is probably your first good choice and repair if you, if it detects damage. And that's what I got to say about that. So, you're totally right. Uh, if, in fact, his problem is that his password is stored incorrectly in the keychain. But I don't think, I think he has a completely different problem. Uh, I, th um, I think I know where you're going is that I've seen this on occasion. Well, he's using think, Gmail. Uh, well, let me guess what you're going to say with Gmail. On occasion, what I see with Gmail is that, especially when you wake a machine, is that mail tries to make too many connections. And I think I've seen this. I don't, I don't know if that's yeah. where you're going, but that's well, that, well. The issue is that's what I've seen happen in that too many connections are being made, and then what happens is Gmail barfs. Right. And if you click on the error message, it'll say, "Sorry, so many too many simultaneous connections. That's uh, right. uh, try later." Now, I still don't know why it's prompting for the password in this case. That well, I, I don't associate that with the multiple connection problem. I think they're two separate problems, right? It, uh, I have seen it where the error that it throws leads mail to believe that it, well, it, it, it doesn't let it log in. And if it happens often enough, mail will say, I can't log in. Therefore, you're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm authentic. I'm able to connect to the server. I'm able to give it a username. I'm able to give it a password and it declines me. So therefore the password must be wrong if it happens too oh, much in a row. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it, it could be anything. It could be, like you said, a damaged keychain. But, uh, but it, you know, like, it, you're, the, the advice you just gave, click on the little, you know, it, it, right, next to in, in, uh, right next to the inbox or any of the mailboxes that it's trying to sync will be that little offline icon when it's offline. 
click on that and it will show you the exact text of the error message. And if in fact you have too many simultaneous connections, it will say you have too many simultaneous connections. And, and that's, that's where you can say, okay. And what, then what you got to do is, you know, mail app, especially in Yosemite is not friendly with Gmail at all. So a lot of times what you need to do is just quit mail on all of your Macs. Your iOS devices are typically a little uh, better in terms of, of this because they don't, you know, they're mobile devices. So they're built not to have too many connections open at once. Quit it on all your Macs. A lot of times what happens is one Mac gets into a loop where it's just got mm. a ton of connections open to Gmail and none of them are working uh, in terms of doing anything productive except taking up uh, your, your 15 slots. It may seem like 15 is a lot. It's not, especially if you've got lots of IMAP mailboxes or in Gmail labels so yeah but that's yeah good stuff man good stuff all right uh anything else on this one um i guess the last one is you, you can also uh, another place in mail to get useful info about why things are screwed up though i think in, in this case uh, yeah you click on the icon and it says yeah, here's the problem. Um, there's always in mail, if you go to the window menu, uh, connection doctor. That's another way to, to uh, glean what's happening. Yep. Um, you should see, if you run that, you should see all happy little green dots in the status column and then the account name and the account type and all that. Um, and I think, I think if you run that, I think you'll also see in connection doctor, I think you'll, you'll see the same error. Well, I can't. Confirm oh, you that because I'm not running into that now. You might. Yeah. The, the thing I do with mail is I leave the activity window open. So windows activity and I just leave it open on my desktop a hundred percent of the time. And if, mm -hmm. I, and you, you know, oh, yeah, it, me too. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. If it's, if it's empty or things are moving in there, great. But if you see things that look like they're stalled, guess what? It's cause they're stalled. And, and that happens a lot with mail. So, all right. It's time to talk about uh, iMazing because those folks are amazing. From DigiDNA, iMazing is a piece of software. It used to be called DiskAid. It allows you to manage all of the media, the data, and even a lot of the settings on your iPhone. You can, if you ever wanted to, if you ever had a song on your phone that you just wanted to take off of the phone, that's, you can't do that in iTunes. You can see that it's there. But you can't copy it off of the phone. Well, you can with iMazing. Uh, you can edit your backups so that you can you can manipulate settings inside an, an app and then restore that to your phone if you want. So if you if you've got something where you know we talked about this like with that that actually that wire that wireless mixer that I had, I needed to get settings off to it. iMazing is the way to do it. Uh, iOS eight point three changed some of the ways that 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 can happen, but iMazing caught right up. And allows you to, you can't edit some stuff directly on the device anymore because Apple doesn't allow it. But with iMazing, you do it inside the backups. So you take a backup of the device and then you make the edit there and then you can shoot the data back up to your device and get the data back where you want it to be. You can even do your backups with, uh, with iMazing if you want. If you need to transfer files back and forth to your iOS device, this is what iMazing also does. It's just, this thing's absolutely fantastic. And you can archive off all your data. You can see your messages and your phone logs, all your pictures and videos, your voicemail, you know, um, your contacts, all of that stuff. Way easier than, than trying to manage this stuff inside iTunes. 
not only is it easier, there's a lot of things you just can't do with iTunes. And you, so you got to check this out. You got to go to imazing.com and, uh, and, and just download a copy of it and, and you can, you can play with it and you'll love it. There's no way you're not gonna, you know, it just allows you to do all the things that you want to do with your device that iTunes just doesn't let happen. So you got to check it out. Imazing.com. Download a copy. It's available for Windows or Mac. Doesn't matter. Uh, I know most of your Mac people, and that's fine. But if you happen to have a Windows machine at the office and you want to copy songs from your iPhone to that machine, this will let you do it. Uh, there's no other way. You know, it's uh, you can treat your iPhone kind of like a mobile storage device when you when you start doing this. Um, it gets really handy. So you got to check it out. Imazing.com. Coupon code MGG saves you 20% off of iMazing uh, when it is time to buy. And, you know, this, I mean, this, this isn't, this isn't expensive. It's 30 bucks. So, you know, you're saving six bucks right off the top there using coupon code MGG. You got to check this out. Go to iMazing.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, I think you'll be amazed. And with that, John, I guess it's time to take us to Michael, right? Uh, because that's, that's how it works. And I'll find Michael here somewhere. Well, Michael, we have a a trail with Michael and I think uh, some background is in order. I believe what he wanted to do. Wait, 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 wait. Let let me, there's not a whole lot of, there is a whole big trail with Michael. You're right. But, but he's got, I, I think we can, I think we can sum it up pretty quickly here. Uh, he had, he had a bad drive. And in one of his, um, in, in one of, in one of his machines, right. Uh, it, correct me if I'm, if I'm missing something, please on this, but, uh, I think we can go pretty quick on this. He, he had a bad drive, uh, ran disc warrior on it several times. It came up bad. So he made a clone of this drive and was able to get his data and is now running from it. However, when he does, uh, runs a disk utility uh, uh, verify on this drive. He says, uh, well, in fact, I'll, I'll read what he says. He says, it works like a charm for now. I, I made it. I made the clone bootable with super duper, but as soon as I get a chance, I'll buy another one terabyte SSD and clone this one back to it. He says, but the problem is disk utility is still showing issues with the hard, hard drive. Things like SUID files are modified and will not be repaired. That sort of thing. He says, my question is, should I clone this bad drive to the new drive and check it with appropriate utilities or do something like a migration assistant or time machine backup restore to make the new boot drive uh, Are clones of bad drives also bad. That's really the, the crux of his question. And it's a good question, right? You know, you, you have this drive that's going south, you get your data off of it. How trustable is that data specifically not just document files, because that's kind of easy. You look at the document. Is it good? Yes. Is it not? Right. But the replaceable data, the, op- the operating system, the applications, should you trust those when you come from a, a dead drive or a dying drive? And the answer is no, you shouldn't. You know, there, there's, especially if you're getting weird errors and that sort of thing, uh, I think your best bet is to, to do exactly what you said, a migration assistant over and put, um, you know, copy the, uh, the, the, you know, put a new OS on the new drive and then migration assistant, your, your data over, uh, or manually copy your data over either way. Uh, if you want to clone back to the new one, I would then go into the recovery partition and reinstall OS 10 on top of it to at least get a, a, a known good 
copy of all the OS 10 files. So that that's that that's you know that's kind of the, the the meta issue here. Was there something was there something I missed, John, or something you want to add? Yes. Okay. Well, I think this started is that he had a 2008 machine, right? And wanted to take the drive from the 2008 machine and put it in a uh, you know kind of similar to what I did, put it in a 2012 machine for whatever reason it didn't start up. Right. Um. One recommendation when that happens is to try to boot up in safe mode, and Apple even even says this. Um, I guess the, the the thing to me is that there there may be a point where the drive is uh, the the machine that a drive is coming from is so old that if if you try to put it in a machine that's four years newer, it's 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 not going to work. Well, maybe. I mean, if as long as it's a it, it's the same type of drive. I mean, if if you're trying to go from a a, a drive, a machine that has ATA drives to SATA drives, that's obviously not going to work. Right. But if you're taking a SATA drive, it's just a SATA drive, but it, but it sounds like his drive was, was on its way out. Right? Uh, that, uh, yeah. And I, I guess that's the conclusion we're coming to is that the drive he was coming from. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But is really- bad. The, the, the only thing I want to mention is that error that he did see. And I'll, uh, mm. uh, I just, I remember seeing this. So the error that he did see, that is not indicative of that message in and of itself. The one that says warning, sewage file, blah, 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 uh, has been modified and not will be repaired. There's a specific That's uh, true. support article and I will put it in our chat room and we'll put it in the notes here. That message is actually annoying, but it doesn't mean that the drive is actually corrupt or damaged. That's just disutility being lame yeah that's true that that's right yeah that 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 error is not indicative of a bad drive but if you know the drive was going bad i think you want to only trust the data that you have to trust which is your unrecoverable or unrecreatable documents pictures etc but the system there's no reason to live with you know a potentially damaged system file even if disk utility doesn't identify it because disk utility doesn't won't identify bad files in that way all the time. Especially if, if you're just doing a, you know, permissions repair or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. All right. You got one more you want to do today, John? Uh, no, cause that's a repeat pretty much. Um, all right. I'll, I'll get us there. I'll get us there. Uh, let's go to Dan maybe. Yeah. Let's go to Dan. Uh, I like Dan. I think I got something to add to Dan. All right, sweet. Dan writes, I could use some expert help from you here. I have an iMac running Yosemite with one user account, the main one, of course, that gets stuck trying to log out, restart, or shut down. Listed below are some of the things I have tried, but so far nothing has worked. The system hangs when I try to log out. The only solution is to push the power button or bring up the terminal window and, window and issue shut down dash r now the system isn't hung and that i can open up other things such as console and terminal but i can't use finder i've seen interesting things when looking in the console log i see messages coming from cloud d and sandbox d where it is having trouble with files that don't exist i think in particular files in library containers com.apple.star uh other many apple things library caches it's saying are not there this is not, there is not a caches folder. When I look on my MacBook Air, uh, a different machine, I do see a caches folder at that level. This may not be a problem, but it's something I have noticed. 
And he's tried doing all kinds of things, deleting preferences, deleting different caches, repairing permissions, starting up in safe mode, which works correctly and does, in fact, let him shut down, signed in and out of iCloud, all of that good stuff. So those cache folders should be able to be created. Anything in, uh, in home library containers, com.apple.say preview slash data slash library should have a caches folder. And in, on his machine, it's not there. Um, the first thing I would do, so he, he said he repaired disk permissions, which in fact, um, is fine, but doesn't impact anything in your home folder. So I would repair your home folder permissions, which can be done a few different ways. We'll put a, we'll put a link to an article that explains how to do it. Uh, you have to, it used to be that we had an app called, uh, Yasu, right? Y-A-S-U that, that let you do that. Um, I don't know of any other apps that will do it at the moment, although I'm sure one exists. Onyx? Will Onyx do your home folder permissions? I believe they added that option. It's buried in there somewhere. I believe okay. they, they did add that out. Let me poke around while you uh, okay. uh, pontificate. Well, we, okay, great. We'll, we'll put a link to an article that shows you how to do it the Apple way, which requires going into uh, recovery mode, but at least it, it works and, and works on, on every OS. Um, but hopefully Onyx can do it because that way you don't have to reboot uh, and, and that'll get there. So, so that's, that's kind of the first thing I would do is, is do that failing that. And I believe that did fail. In fact, for, for Dan here, I would, I would go and manually create that caches folder and then take a look at your logs and see what, uh, and see, you know, see if it complains again and just recreate all the cache folders that you need to, and see what happens, right? You know, are you able to even create them or is there something else going on? Is there some sort of, uh, although again, this should be reset when you do that, but you know, the, the ACLs, which are sort of the extended permissions and all of that should be reset when you do that. Uh, but, right. But maybe okay. not. Yeah, go ahead. D- despite my sickly state, <laughs> my memory has not yet failed me. Although right now I'm feeling something in my ear. Oh man, I hope I don't have an ear infection. Those suck, man. That stinks. Um, uh, I don't know what I what I did wrong. I've been I interacted with the public. Already. I I did. Well, I was yeah. I blame New York City. I went to Manhattan and, and went to a trade show with with all the the huddled masses. It was right. one of the huddled masses. I blame you, huddled masses, for for getting me infected. Was this last? Was this when we went together? Or you went? No, again? no. This was uh, this was, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about it here. Okay. But, but again, I'm I'm you know losing it. I'm incoherent. But uh, mm-hmm. no, I went to CE Week for two days. Or it could be that I had to wake up really early to go to CE Week. But yeah, I went to CE Week for a couple of days. It Got was pretty it. Good. Got it. Well, yeah. I had video and audio and cars and all sorts of tech goodies. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll report on it. All later. right, sweet. But um, the good news is Onyx. So you start up Onyx maintenance permissions. There's a little checkbox. Reset home folder permissions and ACLs. All right. That's so the uh, Onyx. Onyx uh, is, uh, provides a nice interface to do this. Sweet. Yeah, that's the magic answer then. But, but again, if that doesn't work, you know, start trying. Uh, I'm glad we, we got to remember this Onyx thing. But uh, the, um, the other thing that, that I think, and I, I don't think it, I believe this still happens. I'll have to verify this, but I believe Dave, if you start up in verbose mode, not only when you start up in verbose mode, will you see all sorts of chitter chatter, mostly textual indicating what's happening. But I think in this case is a perfect opportunity, but I also believe when you shut your system down, 
you will get additional textual chitter chatter. And I'm almost certain it's going to highlight versus the console. I think it'll highlight exactly where it's getting all confused. Oh, that's true. Yeah. If it gets, if it gets to the point where that happens, that's right. I like that. So I would suggest, yeah, starting up in verbose mode, because the thing is, uh, uh, shut down dash R now is, uh, not something I would recommend you do on a regular it, basis. It's better than hitting the power button because it does shut down uh, the system. Not much. Oh, yeah. no, no. Wait, uh, whoa. I will. I definitely disagree there. Okay. I mean, the power, the power button just kills the system. Shut down dash R now kills your processes without issuing a, 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 an official quit. Right. And maybe, you know, and, and this is why this is an interesting thing, right? But it, um, it also, it shuts the system down properly. It flushes all your caches. It, it shuts down the OS in a very friendly way. It, uh, it well, it actually restarts dash R is, is restart, right? Whereas dash H would be halt and that that'll actually well, power it down. Let's see, man, shut down dash R. The system is rebooted. Oh, Correct. Okay. Yeah, but you get, I mean, it's not just a power down. It's, it doesn't yank it out from underneath it. In fact, sometimes a shutdown dash R now will take, I've seen it take, you know, five minutes as it flushes caches and does what it needs to do. But that it's way better than, than hitting the power button. Not as good as okay. shutting down the right way, but way better. Okay, no, I, I, I think, okay, no, you're right. The dash R is better. I think dash H is the one that you... you no, you can do that, that too. It, there's no, the only difference between dash R and dash H is that... Um, Dash H will not restart after it finishes, but it's the same process. Um, except dash R then restarts and comes back up when you're, you know, when it's when it's done. Whereas dash H halts. Oh, so what you're saying is shutdown is an elegant way of. Uh, it's it's more more elegant. Ele- it's it's better than holding down the power button. Which Correct. Is, yeah, it's not it's not the preferred is, way, but it's better. Yeah, which is why I sometimes will uh, SSH in from a different Mac. If my Mac is totally munged, I'll SSH in from my iPhone. I'll use like prompt or something to, to issue a shutdown space dash R now, um, because at least it's better than hitting the power button. You know, if you, if the mouse is, is in the mouse and the keyboard are, you know, non-functional and all that, if you can get to a terminal, any terminal on your Mac, even from remote and do it, 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 it often works. I've often thought that would be a great idea for an app. In fact. Is that, is that yeah. you know, that just logs in via SSH to your Mac and issues a shutdown dash R or a sudo space shutdown space dash R space now. I don't know. That would be a good idea. I think. I like it. All right. What else do we got here? Is that, uh, we got anything else on this, John? I think that's it. All right. Well then, it's time to bring in the band. Don't you think? I think two more questions. Come on. <laughs> hey, yeah. come on, man. I got to get better here. I got to take the doctor's advice. That's right. We had, we had one of the doctors in our chat room recommend that I, uh, what, what did he recommend? What bourbon. medicine? Better living recommend? through chemistry. Ah, he said, okay. he said bourbon or whiskey, I think was, yeah, was what he said. Okay. Yeah. Better living through right, chemistry. That, that, I, I, I may have to take the advice of the doctor. <laughs> doctor <laughs> said you get to do it. Yeah. I don't think doc rock is actually a doctor. He's a nice guy. He's not a doctor. So, oh, just like internet. Dr. Bob. Same with Dr. Bob. Just like Dr. Very Bob. smart. Not He's a doctor. Not a real doctor. Remember that, folks. That's right. He plays one on. Ask on for his credentials TV before. Ask for credentials first. That's right. <laughs> and and kids, remember this out there. It doesn't matter if it's your doctor, your dad, or your dealer advises you to do something. You choose what you put into your own bodies. 
That's a, it's an important message. I know it sounded snarky, but it's not. It's kind of message. obvious, I think. I mean, well, let's hope, right? Is there ever a case where you don't choose what you put in your own body? Unfortunately. Unfortunately, a lot of people just blindly follow the advice of one of those three or someone else. Oh, all right. You know, it's not good. <laughs> anyway, so there's your, your real advice for today. Uh, now, feedback. We're and, not... Do- I, I was going to say, I'm sorry. It's all right. Go ahead. Take it, man. We're not doctors, but we kind of like to think we know what we're talking about. In which case, if you want a prescription <laughs> to uh, soothe your ills, you can send an email to feedback at MackieCab.com. Yeah, that's feedback at MackieCab.com, folks. But wait, wait. Was that, who, who was that? Was that feedback at MackieCab.com? That's what, that's what they say. Feed. That's right. Premium at MacGeekGab.com. For all of you who are premium subscribers, we certainly appreciate your direct support and are happy to prioritize your questions, although we do try to get to everything. Uh, premium at MacGeekGab.com is one of the perks that you get being a premium member and supporting what we do here. And we really appreciate it. Check it out at MacGeekGab.com. Anybody can pick up the phone, though, if you want to leave us a voicemail and call 206-666-GEEK, which, John, do you remember what that is? I, uh, it's a phone 4335. Sorry, I walked in. That's all right. John, where else can they find us? Where, where else can they find you? Where else can they check in on you, my friend, to make sure that you are on the mend? Ah, my favorite is the Twitters. I'm almost on the, um, almost always on the Twitter. And I try to read my entire timeline and respond, especially respond if people message me directly or do a at reply. And how do you reach all of us on the Twitter? I'm going to tell you. Uh, it's twitter.com. I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. He is Pilot Pete. The podcast is Mac Decab, and the publication is Mac Observer. You got it. That's right. You did it. You remembered. I want to thank Michael Johnston. He converts uh, most of these shows. I think last week didn't get converted. uh, And this week we're actually going to try something different just for the sake of trying something different. But that doesn't mean we don't appreciate Michael's work. Uh, He's uh, he's the host of the iOS show. He makes get Appler G E E T A P P L R.com. You got to check these things out. The iOS show is awesome. So thanks Michael for, for all your hard work here. We appreciate that. Adding all the chapters and everything. Also, in fact, I'll tell you what we did today. It's fine, because the thing's still going. Pete and I uh, took timestamps while we did this, and so we're going to push this out right away and see uh, how many of you notice that we did the chapters a little bit differently today and how many appreciate the slightly less involved chapters and yet the faster turnaround time. So that's what's happening today is the AAC will go out as soon as the show is finished. Um, so we're trying that. It was a little much. If you noticed a uh, little bit of distraction here, well, part of it was John's cold, and part of it was that I got uh, everybody to manage. But part of it input. was that, that multiple Pete, inputs. Pete and I were <laughs> yeah trying to come up with a new workflow here. So anyway, that's uh, that's everybody. Uh, anybody has any ideas about logging timestamps mid-show and all that stuff? We would love to hear it. We think we've got something good, but. Uh, it can always get better. I was thinking of using Keyboard Maestro, Pete. Oh, yeah. If I could somehow get Keyboard Maestro to pull data from the timer that's going on the recording, I could just go into the little file and hit a one keystroke, and it bam, the timestamp, yeah. it drops an anchor, and we're out. 
Yeah. Right? And then I don't have to look and think and paste and type and right. Yeah, so. it's one click. It's one click, yeah. Exactly. So that's that's the thought. So I got if anybody knows Keyboard Maestro really well. Uh, yep. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking of. All right. Anyway, uh, that's I want to thank the folks at Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com, for all the bandwidth that it takes to get the show from us to you, because that's important. The podcast marketplace, of course, includes, as we mentioned in the show, iMazing at uh, iMazing.com. Coupon code MGG saves you 20%. Squarespace, build it beautiful at squarespace.com slash MGG. Coupon code MGG saves you 10%. Connected data, the file transporter store.com. MGG 75 saves you 75 bucks. It's a great deal. Also, the folks at Smile at smilesoftware.com. Linda at lynda.com slash MGG. Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com. And, of course, the folks at Barebones uh, Software at Barebones.com. John, I'm going to have Pete give advice because that's, it's important that we give you advice today. So, Pete, what is it that, uh, that you Listen, might want to share? Know, it's been a long time since I've been around you guys, and I don't know what the heck you've been up to, but I've got to tell you, you've been pretty good about it because I haven't seen anything on the Internet about it. So, you have followed advice from past shows. Well, you didn't get caught. And all of you out there, don't get caught. Don't get caught. 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 Get